that's a really interesting question, sort of, you know, why is there that imitation? And can there really be, you know, a standalone British debate that would not constantly refer to the US and constantly sort of, you know, imitate uh, words, concepts, and even ways of thinking about race? As I look ahead, I am filled with foreboding. Like the Roman, I seem to see the river Tiber foaming with much blood. That tragic and intractable phenomenon, which we watch with horror on the other side of the Atlantic, but which there is interwoven with the history and existence of the state itself, is coming upon us here by our own volition and our own neglect. It has all but come. In numerical terms, it will be of American proportions long before the end of the century. That was Enoch Powell, a conservative British politician who delivered his infamous Rivers of Blood speech on April 20th, 1968. On the same day that Powell offered his apocalyptic vision of a Britain that opened its doors to immigrants, the Federal Bureau of Investigation added James Ulray to its list of 10 most wanted fugitives. Why? Two weeks prior, James Ulray had assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, Tennessee. The night before his death, Dr. King gave a speech posthumously referred to as the I have been to the mountaintop speech. Addressing a congregation in Memphis, Dr. King said, in the human rights revolution, if something isn't done and done in a hurry to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. For Dr. King, the progress of colored persons was vital to human progress. For Powell, it was the end. Dr. King's influence has far exceeded that of Powell's, and Powell's vision ended up being completely wrong. And because of that, the UK and the world is better off. But in the UK, we don't learn about the debate over the Race Relations Act. We don't learn about Powell being sacked by Ted Heath from the Shadow Cabinet because of his speech. We don't even learn about Paul Stevenson and the bus boycott in Bristol. But we do learn about the bus boycott in Birmingham, Alabama. As in many other areas of political and social life, the UK takes its lead on race relations and the study of civil rights from the United States. This was exemplified in June of 2020, when in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, people across Britain, and indeed the world, took to the streets to protest against racism. In London, protesters marched in Parliament Square, and in Bristol, they pulled down the statue of Edward Colston and tossed it into the river, mirroring similar actions in the United States, where statues of Confederates had been pulled down by protesters. This spurred a series of debates and actions across the UK about racism in Britain. For one of our guests this week, this is exactly the problem. Tamiwa Owalade is a writer and critic whose latest book, This Is Not America, Why Black Lives in Britain Matter, argues that we should consider race from a British perspective, not an American one, as we currently do. Our second guest is Dr. Remy Adekoya, a lecturer at the University of York and author of two books, Biracial Britain, and It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth. The latter of these two books would form the bulk of our discussion with Dr. Adekoya. As always, please rate and review Uncommon Decency wherever you get your podcasts and send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. Please consider supporting the show through our Patreon, which is linked in the show notes. 
also linked in the show notes are links to those books that I mentioned earlier. But most importantly of all, our short survey. This is your chance to tell us what you like about the pod and what you'd like to see improve. You can help us make the podcast the best it can be by filling out the short form in the in the show notes. And if that isn't incentive enough, we will pick one random respondent and award them six months of Patreon access for free. And you'll want that Patreon access because this is our last episode of the season until September when we return for a new season of Uncommon Decency. But if you're a patron, you'll get access to some deep dives that we will produce over the summer in reaction to major events in Europe and indeed around the world. We hope you've enjoyed this season of Uncommon Decency, and we will see you again in September. For now, though, enjoy this episode. So I think let's start by framing this conversation on race around a few key themes and ideas. The tagline for this episode is the Americanization of race. And to me, in your latest book, you argue that the conversation around, around race in Britain is too often viewed through the prism of American ideas. I think one example you gave in the introduction, which I thought was quite amusing, is, for example, the extension of the word BIPOC in the UK. Now, for those who are not very familiar with that kind of lingo, BIPOC means, in the American context, um, Black, Indigenous people of colour. But obviously, in the UK context, Indigenous people sounds awful lot like what the kind of stuff you'd hear from the far right, not from the kind of American uh, progressives. So it's an example of those words creeping in, but losing their context and a sign of American influence. So... What are maybe some of the key differences between the two countries' histories and experiences on race that you fleshed out in your latest book, Tamiwa? So the Black British population is very different to the Black American population. The Black British population represents only about 4% of the overall British population, whereas the Black American population represents only um, 13%. And between the time that America was founded as a republic in the late 18th century up until today, there has always been a substantial minority of black people. So the percentage of the black population of America has always been between about 13% and about 19%. Whereas in the UK, the black British population is at its highest now at 4%. So simply put, um, there are far more black Americans than black British people and this is true historically and it's true today. Another important difference as a consequence of this is that there are so many cities and towns and areas in America where the majority of the population is black whereas in the UK the the area with the largest um, black population is London um, and the percentage of London that's black is about 14%. Um, So in America, it's far much easier to be black and to have an exclusively um, black social circle than it is in Britain. I think another important historical difference is that the vast majority of Americans can trace their ancestry to to, um, enslaved Africans that were transported 
to the New World between the 17th and the um, 19th centuries. Whereas as of today, the majority of Black British people are either immigrants or the children of, children of immigrants from Africa. Up until about 25 years ago, the majority of Black British people were Black Caribbean people. Um, so people whose um, families came from um, countries like Jamaica, Trinidad, Guyana, and other Caribbean countries. Um, but over the past 25 years, there's been a massive influx of immigration from Africa, right. which means that as of today, there are twice as many Black African people as there are Black Caribbean people, which means that the majority of Black people in Britain today are not descendants from enslaved Africans that were transported to the New World. Uh, Remy, any thoughts on about the kind of differences between the, the Black experience in, 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 in Britain and the Black experience in America? I think Tommy Wan mentioned uh, several um, important points. So you have, of course, the demographic differences between the black population here and there. And you have the different history, of course. You probably have also, if you were to really dig deep, you might find some different uh, socioeconomic indicators with regards to the black population in America and the black population here. So I think there's lots of differences. What I think is an interesting question is why is it that British debate tends to imitate American debate when it comes to race. And I think one of the reasons is that generally, British debate often imitates American debate in several spheres, not only race. And as it happens, it also imitates um, American debate uh, when it comes to race. And I think it's because perhaps a special language hasn't yet been developed, and hopefully uh, Tomiwa will do a lot to sort of redress this situation. A special language doesn't seem to have been developed here in Britain that would be a British language talking about race in British terms, specifically focused on the British context. And I think that kind of language simply hasn't been developed. And that's why you have situations like Tomiwa talked about in his book about, you know, people using terms like BIPOC, yeah, it was called, and simply, you know, what's What's heard, you know, on, on, on the TV screens, you know, on NBC or, you know, what New York Times is, is talking about race and how they're talking about race, that simply tends to be sort of imitated here. So I think these are some of the, I think that that's a really interesting question, sort of, you know, why, why, why is there that imitation? And can there really be, you know, a standalone British debate that would not constantly refer to the US and constantly sort of, you know, imitate uh, words, concepts and even ways of thinking about race? like we have um, in the US. So t- to me, well, I'd love to, to get your thoughts on that. But I think, um, Remy, you, you fleshed out something interesting, which is it's not simply that, you know, there's an Americanization of a race debate in, in the United Kingdom, is that there's an Americanization of many conversations in the yes. UK. Um, yes. You know, and I think to me, well, in your book, you, you point out that you were feverishly following the American election, as, as most of us were, mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, probably in the colonies in 1945, uh, they wouldn't be following the British election with as much passion as we would be following the American election nowadays. So is it just a case of us being Americanized in general, or is there like something specific about race, you think? I, I think Remy is completely correct in saying that this is not exclusively about race. The racial element of it is symptomatic of a wider issue. Um, and it's true of many social and cultural um, debates that we do follow American 
conversations to an excessive degree. It's also true, for example, um, of the debates around abortion. It's also true um, about other kinds of political and sensitive areas of debate and discussion. Um, and it makes sense. I, I think it makes complete sense why we look at race in the UK through an American perspective, because we watch American TV shows, we follow American news, and many of us use social media. And anyone that uses social media will know that social media is dominated by America. So it makes complete sense why we internalize American ways at looking at race and other issues and follow the um and follow them to an excessive degree. It makes complete sense. One question I, I, I want to ask you about is we we talk about kind of a kind of a British tradition and maybe an American tradition, but something I, I'm interested in is there's many traditions on 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 race in, in the United States. There's at least two of them which I think are quite emblematic of the 1960s. There's the Malcolm X versus kind of Martin Luther King debate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just to be a bit schematic here, but you had the Malcolm X vision, which, I mean, for those who like the Marvel movies, talking about Americanization, it's a bit like the Magneto versus Professor X debate. Uh, on one side with Malcolm X, you have this kind of very negative vision of race relations with the idea that you can never be fully American because the history of America is built around this kind of crime of slavery and that you know uh, black americans should never seek to be kind of to fully integrate or assimilate because that will never happen and you'll, you'll always be um distrusted by the by the white majority and then you had another tradition which is also about based with an understanding of history where you have this idea that actually the american ideal is an ideal of uh, always progressing a little further a little closer to the the ideals that the founders put in the constitution and that there is a more optimistic vision for race relations. And my, my question is, why does it seem that the successors of Malcolm X, who have this kind of more negative understanding of uh, of race, more pessimistic understanding of race, maybe is a better term, you know, the language around white supremacy or the language around um, uh, systemic racism, why do you think this version of, of, of American understanding of race has exported itself rather than maybe the kind of Civic nationalism, I think maybe is one way we'd put it, of, of Martin Luther King, um, starting with Tamiwa. I, I think, okay, so I think in my book, um, the striking thing about my book is that I argue that um, both the Malcolm X black nationalist worldview and also the Martin Luther King um, integrationist worldview are both fundamentally American. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is a temptation to see um, Malcolm X's black nationalism and um, subsequent pessimistic worldviews such as critical race theory as a kind of existential threat to American civilization, as something almost analogous to communism, as something which subverts um, the integrity of American civilization. But I argue that even though people like Malcolm X and the founder of critical race theory, Derek Bell, Mm -hmm. espouse a pessimistic view of race, 
they still judge America by American standards. So with critical race theory, for example, I wouldn't see it as a kind of existential external threat because it emerges from the tradition of American constitutional law. Derek Bell was a law professor and Derek Bell, um, and this is true of Malcolm X as well, even though he disavows America and even though he condemns America in very absolutist term terms, the very way by which that condemnation is done, the very language that's used to make that condemnation is still the language of American ideals. Um, so many of these pessimistic thinkers nevertheless still subscribe to an American way of looking at race because the values that they use to condemn America still refer to the values of liberty, equality, um, and many of the values that have been expressed in the American Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, and in certain um, tropes and norms, um, such as the shining city on a hill, and, and other norms that are firmly rooted in an American context. And so I think in trying to understand these um, ideologies, we need to understand the American context as to why these this, this ideology or these ideologies, both black nationalism and also critical race theory and, and so forth, have been exported. Um, I think it's very difficult to say, but if I was to speculate, I would give a very basic answer which is that um, bad news, especially at the moment, sells more than good news. Um, and if you want to make people, um, if you want to grab the attention of people, it is more effective to um, express um, a kind of pessimism than to express something which is optimistic. Um so, so it's it's very difficult, for example, to sell a film or a novel that's extremely optimistic, um, or to write a newspaper article that's extremely optimistic. But if you do it in a very pessimistic tone, it would sell far more, and I think that's I think that's a big part of why the, the this kind of pessimistic strain has been more successfully exported out of America to European countries and the rest of the world as well. Remy? Yes. So I'd have two words uh, for why this sort of more radical, like you say, Malcolm X-like uh, kind of thinking has gained ascendance. Uh, events and emotions. Now, there's always been a more a tradition of a more optimistic look at race relations in America and a tradition of a more pessimistic look at race relations in America, as Tomiwa mentioned. Events determine which of those outlooks gain ascendance and start to resonate with the general public. Obama embodied that optimistic take on race in America. And when Obama won in 2008, we started hearing about you know, a post-racial world and sort of you know, optimism was in the air, okay? And people started talking about the fact that really we've moved so far in this whole race uh, debate and 
race reality, really, that, you know, Barack Obama has just been elected president of the United States. And really, racism in America is pretty much a thing of the past. When events like that happen, like the Obama win, the radicals are on the defensive. They then look silly, okay? Because people say, hey, you guys have been saying America is a fundamentally racist country. Wasn't it the same America that just elected this guy called Barack Obama who looks the way he does? And then, so I'd say you could, you either divide them into optimists and pessimists, or as I divide the left into the hard left and the soft left. So Obama represented the optimistic soft left, and the Malcolm X types represent the pessimistic hard left. When events like Obama's um, uh, uh, presidency happen, the hard left is on the defensive, the optimists take over, and they sort of dominate the narrative, and their narrative resonates with people. But then what happened eight years after Obama was elected? Trump got elected. The guy who was questioning whether Obama was even born in America. Can you imagine? Who was even questioning whether Obama was born in America, who essentially led that Bertha movement, now got elected president of the United States in 2016, despite saying all the things he did during the campaign. That was another major event. That kind of event puts the optimists on the defensive. It puts, it puts the soft left on the defensive and the hard left can then come out and say, see, we told you guys. We told you these people are racist. And you said, no, post-racial world at all. Oh, look at Obama, got elected, etc. Didn't this Obama do pretty much everything by the book? No scandal, nothing, okay? How many presidents can say they serve two terms, not a whiff of personal scandal in the White House? He did all that and still these, quote-unquote, these white Americans were so upset at him having get elected that they voted in Trump. We told you America is fundamentally racist. And once that Trump election happened 2016, that's when the real ascendance of, you know, the sort of BLM kind of school of thinking and that Malcolm X kind of school of thinking simply came to the fore. And of course, if you then add in the fact that here in Britain there was Brexit, a rise of, you know, far-right populist movements around, you know, whether it's in Germany, you know, Le Pen in France, you know, there was a moment like that, 2016, when it really looked as if, you know, hard-right views and parties that espouse hard-right views are going to take over. And in such a situation, of course, like I say, the anti-racist, you know, th that radical strand of element gains resonance. They now seem to be the people who actually had it right all along. Mm -hmm. So those are the, th that's what I'd say. And so that's events. The second one is emotions. And as Tommy was sort of implies, social media is a big thing here. You know, emotions are what are really driving this race debate. And emotions generally are at the root of many group conflicts. And so even if there is an objective conflict there, let's say there's, you know, disparities in, in wealth, for instance. Yeah. So objectively, there's disparities in wealth between X and Y. What really determines whether that is going to cause serious friction between group X and Y are the emotions around that objective reality. So what kind of voices are going to dominate? Is it the voices that will say, okay, fine, look, um, these objective disparities exist, but let's try and think about, you know, sensible, rational ways to sort of, you know, remove them and make things more equal? Or is it going to be voices that are going to talk about, oh, look at what's going on. You know, we are oppressed. We are marginalized. Look at what these people are doing. They've always been exploiting us, etc. You know, that's the sort of emotional voices. And in a world of social media, as Tommy Wah has alluded, apart from, you know, what kind of books sell, that's what sells on social media. It's emotions. Yeah. So when you 
have a post, you have a tweet, and it's like, oh, you know, these white people are just like X or Y, or these white people this, or, you know, white supremacy this, and, you know, whiteness this and that, you know, people respond to it because those emotions, that resentment, yeah, exists out there. It's not manufactured, okay? It's not manufactured, it exists. So all it takes is for someone, you know, sort of savvy enough to know which buttons to push, and they press those buttons, and the crowd responds, and we have what we have today. going to quickly touch on Malcolm X and Dr. King. I think there is something of a misunderstanding of both men and their thoughts, and particularly the evolution that happened later on in their lives. Malcolm X, after he went on the Hajj in 1964, he came back. He always had a humanist view, mm. but I think his views on race in the United States changed after the Hajj because he saw the pluralism mm-hmm. um, overseas. And then he came back to the United States and viewed... American society, its economy, as a unique system that created the racism within white Americans. And that's what perpetuated uh, the racist structures within society. And I think Dr. King, you know, his two most prominent and most repeated quotes are, of course, from the March in Washington, the I Have a Dream speech, and the quote that originally comes from a pastor in the 19th century about the uh, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, which was, of course, a favorite of President Obama's. Um, but in his later years, a skepticism creeped in to Dr. Mm-hmm. King. And there's a magnificent new biography by Jonathan Eag about Dr. Martin Luther King um, that sort of touches on aspects of this. And you see it in the writings of, say, uh, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, who's written a lot about this aspect of Dr. King's teaching and his philosophy and how it isn't the universally positive Mm. narrative that many and especially Republican politicians like to quote today in the United States when it comes to race relations. They like to talk about, um, you know, not judging people on the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But Dr. King did drift away towards this, drift away from this in his later years. And I think both of those lines of thinking inform one of the main pillars in recent conversations around racial issues in the United States. That is, of course, critical race theory. And you've touched on Derek Bell's um, outlining of critical race theory. Um, Remy, in your book, you in your book, it's not about whiteness, it's about wealth. You describe how structural inequities in the global system perpetuate disparities between majority white and black countries. Now, I, I want to sort of take an intellectual and philosophical leap here. Would it be fair to say that in some ways this represents an international institutional version of CRT? And just for those who are unaware of what critical race theory is, and please do correct me if you have um, issues with my definition, I'm going to try and give a concise one. Critical race theory is a, is a framework that argues that the perpetuation of racism and racial hierarchies in societies is ingrained in legal, social, and cultural structures rather than just from individual prejudice. So an example of this would be you apply for a mortgage, the person reviewing your mortgage application isn't themselves racist, but decades of um, income and wealth inequality have meant that the algorithm deciding on whether you're which interest rate you're going to get means that because you're black, you get a higher interest rate than if you were white. That's sort of uh, what we mean by critical race theory. Um, so uh, Remy, starting with you, do you, do you think that, you know, the global system, talking about like the IMF, the World Bank, the fact that they're dominated by majority white countries mm-hmm. and that most people dependent on 
on financing from the IMF and the World Bank are majority black countries. Do you think this is a sort of international example of CRT in practice? I wouldn't say so. So I try to take a, I like to think I take a humanist perspective in the sense that I do not see any more flaws in white people than I perceive in black people or brown skinned people. Okay. We all have the same, you know, pros, the same cons. Uh, we can all be wonderful. And we can all be horrible. We can all be selfish and we can all be selfless. And there's absolutely no difference between when it comes to skin color that doesn't differentiate in our capacity for all these things. That's number one, which I'd like to make clear. Having said that, we live in a world that functions on certain structures that have been put in place some time ago and are, of course, evolving. There are certain objective, as I try to show in my book, wealth disparities between various parts of the world that have obvious consequences in the amount of agency and power that particular groups have. Now, the reason why it's even worth talking about wealth in the context of race is because we do happen to live in a world in which wealth often maps up, maps onto race. When we talk about, like if, if I gave the example that if you took the GDP of all the 60 plus black majority countries in the world, that means all those in Africa, plus those in the Caribbean, it still wouldn't amount to Germany's GDP, Germany's $4 trillion GDP. That's the kind of world we live in. So we live in a world in which, let's call it the white group, or you know those racialized as white, whatever you want to call it, have several, several, several times the amount of wealth that, for instance, black people have and other non-white groups. How this emerged, you know, we know the history. There's, for me, there's really little point going over that again, you know, going over slavery and colonialism. When people say, you know, these things are not talked about enough, you know, I think that's absurd. There's probably been like 250 books written about slavery and perhaps like 400 about colonialism. And at least a third of each of those books will be good. So it's not like these things haven't been talked about. They're talked about, really. That's not the point. The point is the world we live in today. So as you mentioned, we do live in this world in which we have this IMF, we have this World Bank, where, as I said, for instance, in the book, simple example, the IMF has an executive board of 24 directors who really decide what goes on in the IMF. And single member countries like Britain, France, the US have a seat at the table. So they have one representative per country. 44 countries in sub-Saharan Africa have only two representatives. Those 44 countries in a group, they just have two representatives. So this, this, this explains the kind of thing, um, uh, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. And these wealth gaps have effects, you know, in education. It is why it's Western universities that sort of lead global knowledge production, dominate global knowledge production. If you prefer, have more power in, you know, in the UN, in the IMF, you know, in the World Bank. This is why migration patterns are the way they are, that you have people from the poorer global south trying to move to richer countries of the global north. It's why technology is mostly based in you know, Western countries or wealthy East Asian countries. But like I said, this is not really about skin color. It's really about you know, who has the wealth, who has the capital. It's not really about skin color. Yeah? So the Japanese have as much you know, um, advantage in this fair as the Brits do, okay? because similar level um, economies really. So what I try to do in the book is show that, look, we live in a capitalist world. That's the reality. And a capitalist world runs on money. 
So if you really want to analyze what's going on between groups, sort of group dynamics, you have to look at the amount of wealth they have at their disposal and what the con practical consequences of that are in key domains of our life. It's not making an accusation of anybody. It's not, like I say, going on to this, oh, you know, the white people imperialist and all that. That solves nothing, really. So I just try to paint a picture of the world we live in, how things look materially at that big picture level, okay? And how that affects people's daily lives, including when it comes to race, because, you know, this is not just about those material differences, objective differences. It's also about subjective differences. It's about the meaning people attach to wealth and to groups seen as successful. You know, there's a reason why a white person walks into a restaurant in Nairobi or in Lagos and the waiters will generally dance around that person. Okay. They will do that not because it is a white person, but they will do that because they associate whiteness with wealth, often rightly so, and assume this is, you know, going to be a very good customer who's probably going to leave some serious money here in our restaurant. That is why they will dance around that white person. Other people in that same restaurant, Kenyans or Nigerians, might look and be offended at the waiter. Oh, you know, why did they respond like that? You know, just because they saw a white person come into the restaurant. They didn't respond like that when I came into the restaurant. I, a Nigerian, or I, a Kenyan. Ah, you see, this is this racial complexes going on. But it's much deeper than racial complexes. It's economic realities. So that's why that waiter will dance around that white person. Whereas a black person might walk into a place in India or in China or in Japan and might, on average, generally be looked down on or not treated that respectfully. Definitely not treated as respectfully as a white Westerner. And this is not really just about skin color. Look, I had a friend... Uh, uh, of mine, a Middle Eastern scholar, he got a job at, uh, at the American University um, in Dubai. And he went there and he worked there. And, you know, six months he came back to the UK and he said, you know, I, I couldn't continue there. And I said, why? He said, you know, the way people are treated there. He said, you see, there's a difference in the way they treat people, even based on the countries they come from. So, for instance, the white Western scholars, the Emiratis, were very deferential and very respectful towards the white Western scholars, you know, from the Britons, the Francis, etc., but looked down and treated contemptuously the white scholars from Serbia, Bulgaria, and the other poorer European countries, you see. So deference towards the rich white Western um, uh, Europeans and condescension towards the poorer white um, uh, Europeans working in the same university, and we're talking people who had similar academic qualifications. So, you know, that, that's the world we live in. And it has, like I say, effects on how people view groups. It has effects on group stereotypes, you know. What groups are stereotyped positively? They tend to be wealthy groups. You know, we have all these myths of how hardworking the Japanese are and the Germans, they are so disciplined and organized and this and that. And if you notice those kind of positive stereotypes around competence criteria, which is key in a meritocracy, they tend to be attributed to wealthy groups. Whereas poorer groups will often tend to be attributed negative criteria when it comes to competence. People will talk about how they are disorganized, you know, some will go as far as to say they are lazy and things like that. So this wealth thing, it's not just about the mere possession of wealth. That's a lot already, but it's also about the meaning people read into this and how this affects psychological dynamics. So I'm not here to make any accusations. I'm here to point out, look, this is how I see the big picture thing. And these might be the things we might need to do to try and change this. You know, I'm definitely not here to tell anybody that white people are inherently racist and, and, and that kind of nonsense, because, you know, that's that, that's rubbish, simply. I think there's one anecdote in your book that really stood out to me as well, which was the media coverage after 
the invasion of Ukraine, mm-hmm. when you pointed out that one reporter sort of qualified ah, Ukraine as exactly. almost in Europe. And yeah. again, that sort of points to your argument about wealth. And it, I thought it was really yeah, interesting. Just to add that, Francois, I remember the, um, the, the comment. He said, oh, it's, 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 it's shocking to see, um, you, know, bomb, you know, this is not Iraq, etc. It's shocking to see bombs here in Kiev. It is a relatively European, relatively civilized country. Relatively, you see. That's what the Americans said. So that's where you have the hierarchy constructions within whiteness. So, of course, the Ukrainians are not seen as equal to the French or to the British because they're obviously economically much, much, much lower down the hierarchy. And so to the American, they are only relatively civilized and relatively European. To me, we're sort of sticking with the, the CRT argument, but I'm moving it to a more concrete example. So this morning on the day of recording, um, the English Cricket Board or the board, English Cricket Board of England and Wales has issued an unreserved apology for widespread discrimination following the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket's report on uh, discrimination in the sports of cricket. That's just one example of discrimination in British society. Do you think that CRT, you know, taking into account what you said and what we've discussed about applying US prisms um, to race relations in the UK, do you think CRT is applicable in this circumstance or in Britain generally? Um, I've not seen that report in full, but somebody told me that George Floyd was mentioned in it. Is that true? Uh, I will do a quick search now and get back because <laughs> I have not read it either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, somebody, somebody on Twitter. This, this might just be nonsense, but somebody on Twitter said that George Floyd was actually mentioned on the very first page, or quite near, or, or, or definitely he mentioned in the, in the foreword. Really? The mission's work was instigated as a consequence of the broad reactive introspection generated by the public outcry following the tragic murder of George Floyd. So over to you, Tamiwa, well, the floor is your floor. <laughs> Tamiwa, well, maybe could you also talk about another anecdote, which is one of the reasons actually we're doing this episode. Um, the incident you had with uh, Diane Abbott. Um, when you, oh, I, think, right. I think both of them are quite related, actually. Diane Abbott is an extremely important and influential Labour Party politician. Um, She became the first black female MP in 1987. Um, And she was also um, a big supporter of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour um, Party. Um, A few months ago, I wrote an article for a Sunday newspaper in the UK called The Observer, in which I argued that when we think about racism, we shouldn't simply think about racism as something that only affects black and brown people. We should also consider forms of racism that affect um, ethnic minority groups that are often racialized as white or perceived as white. Um, So I mention Irish people, I also mention Roma and traveller communities, and I also mention Jewish people. A week after my article was published, Diane Abbott, the Labour MP, wrote a letter to the Observer in which she argued that though Jewish people can encounter prejudice, they can't be victims of racism. And as evidence to support her claim, she mentioned the fact that Jewish people 
were not told to sit at the back of the bus in Jim Crow America and Jewish people didn't suffer the same kind of discrimination in apartheid South Africa whilst also completely omitting one of the greatest genocides of the 20th century. Um, so in, in a way, Diane Abbott herself reinforced the argument that I make in my initial column. As to the case of critical race theory and whether or not it applies to a UK context, um, I, I, I think critical race theory, I think we need to understand the history of critical race theory rather than just simply um, viewing it as this kind of abstract intellectual concept that applies everywhere. So critical race theory emerged because Derek Bell and other legal scholars and theorists felt that um, the civil rights revolution did not end inequality and oppression in American society. That after the legal um, changes which happened in the 50s and also the 60s, which struck down on segregation in schools, segregation in work, and other types of discrimination, there were still this racial, racially motivated disparities in America. There was still institutional racism. Um, but in the UK, we have never had the kind of institutionalized segregation that was found in America, which is not to say that racism has never been present in the UK or that racism is not present in the UK today. Just to give a couple of examples, I would contend that the recent um, Windrush scandal was an example of racism because we had a population um, of people that came to the UK as British citizens from the Caribbean and due to the um, nefarious incompetence of the Home Office, many of them were threatened with deportation. Many of them lost access to welfare benefits, lost access to um, National Health Service benefits. Um, and most of them have not been compensated yet for the scandal. Um, I would also um, argue that when we think about institutional racism, we need to think about it in a British context. Um, so there's been a working definition of institutional racism for 25 years in the UK, which emerged out of the murder of, of, of Stephen Lawrence. Now, Stephen Lawrence was a young black man that was murdered by a group of white supremacists in 1993, I believe, in southeast London. Um, and in 1999, um, there was something called the McPherson Report, which found that the London Metropolitan Police was an institutionally racist organisation. Um, so I'm not, I'm not against using terms like institutional racism, 
but I think that when we, but I think when you, when we use words like critical race theory, that always strikes me as an American concept because it emerged from a very particular historical context, which is the context of constitutional lawyers trying to explain and trying to make sense of why the civil rights revolution did not complete its mission. Mm-hmm. Um, Remy, we'll, we'll circle back to you, but I think you asked a, a good, a good. You made a good point of a start, which is I think we need a a British language to talk about race. And and to me, what maybe you could help us flesh it out because I think when we talk about those conversations, we're all very or well, not familiar, maybe with the works, but at least with the names of Dr. King, Malcolm X, uh, Baldwin, for example. Uh, Dubois. Um, du what Bois. are some? Sorry, Du Bois. Yeah, um, I'm pronouncing French way. <laughs> um, how would you? Who are the kind of intellectuals and, and and concepts you would point out in a British con in a British context, which would help kind of flesh out this kind of uh, grammar of, of race in the UK? If you enjoyed the episode and want to listen to our full conversation with Remy and Tamiwa, you can join us on our Patreon for as little as €5 a month. So join us in our Patreon section, or otherwise see you in the outro. Well, thanks a lot to both of you for coming. A very rich and fruitful conversation. There's many more topics we could have covered. Um, your, your Polish experience, Remy. Um, mm. But I think we, we have to, to give it a close now. But thank you so much to both of you for... I mean, really a fascinating conversation. It's uh, a great conversation about about race and how we approach it here in the UK and how the US is appro- approaches it and the, the nuances of that conversation. So Remy and Tamiwa are out. That was a fascinating, long-ranging conversation. Um, before we go on to the outro, I just want to remind everyone that if you like Uncommon Decency, you've been a fan for a long time, you've been listening to many episodes, or actually you just discovered it and you want to give your two cents, we are running running a survey right now, which is a great opportunity for you to tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to be introduced, what you'd like to be changed. So it's a short survey. Hopefully it should be fun, shouldn't be too long. A few questions uh, about what, how we're doing, what could be better. And I think it's really useful for us to get this kind of feedback because you know it's not always easy to know what you're doing or what you're not. So if you're involved in the podcast and would like to help, please consider um, responding to the survey. And we're adding a little treat, which is we'll randomly select one of the people who responded to the survey and we'll give them six months of our first patron tier for free. So essentially you'll get all the episodes we published over last year in the full version, the full version of it. And you'll be able to see when we start next year, the full episodes as well. So please respond to the survey. We'll randomly select someone over the summer and we will give you six months for free of our patron content if you want to join us on that as well. So let's get back to it. It's a wide-ranging conversation really fascinating. Um, if you haven't listened to the uh, longer version for our patrons, we also had a great conversation about France and how that kind of relationship uh, to race differs and how maybe France is a little different in its approach to um, to to this kind of American approach to race. 
So please do tune in for that. It's quite very interesting as well. Um, I just want to point out something which I never really considered. So the way we do we, we do this is, you know, we're all busy. So we're trying to find a, a slot that works for at least two of us. This time it was me and Julian. And Julian was, was texting in a WhatsApp group saying, oh, I really want to do this. I've known Julian for uh, about 10 years now. And I was like, okay, well, you know, he, he wants to do this episode because he's British and um, this is an episode about Britain. But I completely forgot that Julian actually is, you know, uh, mixed race. Is that how you define yourself? Yeah, I go with mixed race or biracial. Yeah. You and, just say mixed race because it's easier. Yeah. And yeah, I guess it's, it's, Maybe it's a very French thing of me, but I, I never really thought about you that way. I mean, you were a rugby teammate, your your friends, but I, I, I guess I never really gave much weight to that part of you as, you know, defining who you are or, or not, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's great to have you on and bring your unique perspective on this because, um, you know, I, I came in here as a, as a foreigner to this country, but obviously that's a very different relationship to being someone who is uh, uh, biracial or of mixed race. So anyway, Julian, what did you make of that episode? Yes, this was absolutely one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done, not just because of the substance of the topic, the personal nature of the conversation. I think the breadth of the conversation today was astounding. Um, Not just covering civil rights in the United States, how that affects the world, but also just American influence globally and generally across a range of issues. And it's really fascinating to see the extent of U.S. influence on especially British culture, political culture and social culture, um, just taking one issue of race relations. And we sort of alluded to it uh, during our conversation about the English cricket board's uh, independent report on yeah. discrimination. And, you know, to me, what asked me, does, does it mention George Floyd? And, you know, it does in the foreword. In fact, he's mentioned four times in the report. And it mentioned specifically how the independent report was the result or was at least the impetus was spurred by the death of George Floyd. Indeed, many um, comments, investigations, reports, uh, and general awareness of racism in society in the last few years are all a direct result of the protests that emerged globally after George Floyd's murder. And it's sort of a, a concrete example, specifically in race relations, of how the United States is able to sort of shape global dialogue. And I think what I really enjoyed about this conversation is, and this is to sort of use an anecdote and pick up on one of the the questions that you asked. You asked both our guests, Remy and Tamiwa, if they had any um, authors that they would recommend for a British perspective on race relations. And I remember after um, Death of George Floyd, my previous employer, they gave us Juneteenth off. It was a British company, but I was working in the US office, but they gave us Juneteenth off, which was very good of them. And I was asked... Could, actually, could, could, you, could you explain what Juneteenth is? To, because I think yes. most people who aren't American would have no idea what yeah, it is. Of course, yeah. Juneteenth is uh, an American holiday. It is now a federal American holiday. It, has, it wasn't always, but it was in certain states in the US. That marks the moment in which the Emancipation Proclamation ending slavery was read out in Galveston, Texas uh, on June 19th. And it's seen as a sort of emancipation day and independence day for the black american community and it's now become a federal holiday um in the united states and so it's a little odd that a british company would give a british office juneteenth off but it's a sort of solidarity for 
the black community globally, in part because of the massive influence that the United States has. Um, but yes, yeah, so we were given Juneteenth off, British company, very generous of them, um, but we were in the US, so it made sense. And I was asked to put together a list of materials and books that people should read. And a lot of the ones that I suggest, in fact, all of the things I suggested were, of course, American. And a large part of that is the Black side of my identity is entirely associated with the American part of my identity. So for those who don't know, I'm a citizen of the United States and the UK. So everything I was writing down, I was writing down Douglas, I'm writing down Baldwin, Booker T. Washington, um, you know, Tony Morrison. And it's just none of it is British. It was all about the US side. And I think in, that sort of goes to the point that Tamir was making in his book, uh, which is why I'm really glad you asked the question to both Remy and Tamir. Uh, and I do encourage you to read both of their books um, about, you know, the sort of overwhelming influence of the United States on a lot of topics. Um, but Francois, you're in the UK yeah. and have been for the last few years. What have you noticed about sort of conversations around race, whether it's just in general public or, you know, in the workplace um, recently? Do you think it's different? Do you think it's overly Americanized? Do you think it's conducive to positive solutions or is, is it still a bit of a, um, or is it just not quite relevant to what the UK needs? So actually, in our in our earlier version of the kind of brainstorming we did for for the the episode, one of the questions we, we had was, do you think um, BLM has done more harm or more good to the conversation around race in the in the UK? Um, obviously, I don't have the definitive answer on this. Um, I think you know the the report on cricket. While you know it's it's possibly a bit silly that they mentioned uh, George Floyd. But it's also a sign that actually this BLM movement has pushed us to kind of think about, you know, how do we approach race, the rest of it. Now, I am very sceptical about BLM, the movement, um, and it seems that there's been a lot of kind of grifter types at the top. Um, a lot of the kind of, uh, not all of them, but some of the kind of DEI stuff that came out of it um, ended up being counterproductive from, from early reports that came out. So there's obviously been a lot of people who are not very, not serious people, to quote Logan Roy, who've been able to uh, surf on the coattails of that kind of moment of emotion following his death. But I think it probably also sparked some some legitimate conversations about race and how um, they probably weren't completely ended. So, yeah, I don't have a definitive answer. I, I am skeptical of the kind of Americanization of a language and rhetoric. And I think that's what Tumiwa does very well in pointing out is that there is, there should be a kind of unique grammar and, and rhetoric and vocabulary on race for the UK. Um, the example he gave about the Diane Abbott letter, and I think that's in the patron section. So um, apologies for those who, who, who weren't there for that, but essentially the idea here is Diane Abbott wrote a letter in response to me was um, one of Timo's op-ed, which was kind of um, laying out the same case that he does in his book. And she said, you know, white people can be victims of, 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 of racism, sorry, of, of prejudice, but they can't be victims of racism, even if they're gypsies or, Jew, or Jews. Um, but what's interesting is to, to, to explore that, that, that point she makes, she points out to the example of apartheid in South Africa and the example of Rosa Park having to be at the back of a bus and having and this not applying to Jews. But obviously, we're talking about British context. These the examples that came to mind immediately were American 
concepts. And I think something which is really interesting is the most powerful black people in the world, the most influential, the most well-known are all American. You know, it goes from Oprah Winfrey to Michael Jordan or Barack Obama, of course. And essentially what has been happening is the kind of black American experience has become in, in our imaginary, the kind of universal experience. And a lot of it is simply due to the fact that America is the cultural hegemon of our, of our era. And the UK, essentially the UK sharing the same language is kind of stuck in a, you know, let's, let's think Britain as like a small fish sharing a, a swimming pool with a huge American giant um, or whale. That whale, if it moves a little bit to tell, is going to have a ripple effect all across the pool and the UK is, is in that swimming pool. Um, yeah, I guess, sorry, I, I, I probably didn't answer your question, but I think, to me, what is right, the conversation in the UK needs its own rhetoric, its own grammar. And at the moment, I am not seeing enough of it, although the BLM movement probably had a positive effect in kind of sparking an honest reflection on race. Yeah, I think for me, the, the, the US influence and its gravity is important in spurring a debate because I just don't think you get the awareness without the prominence of American ideas and commentators and events. It just wouldn't filter over to the UK, um, perhaps even in the absence. I mean, you know, the fact that more people in the UK probably know who George Floyd is than who Stephen Lawrence is. Yep. I think it's probably indicative of um, not just, you know, recency bias, but I think you know, a lot of young people, they just don't learn about these incidents in British history. I mean, I made an example of in the UK, you're more likely to learn about the Birmingham, Alabama bus boycott than you are about the Bristol bus boycott. Yep. Um, and, you know, I think if there's anything that the US gravitational pull and its dominance of so that's, I suppose, one negative aspect of it. But the positive aspect is that it raises awareness and perhaps leads to a change in the way we teach. I mean, we've done an episode earlier in the season about empire. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation in the last few years about uh, reassessing the British empire and teaching different perspectives on that in school. And perhaps, you know, we don't just stop a, a binary assessment of the empire as good or ill, but look at long-term uh fallout from its dissolution and what that's meant for British society. You know, one of the central points in Tamiwa's book is that the black community in Britain are majority immigrants. They're not, um, they can't trace their ancestry back several centuries like black yeah. Americans can um, because of the slave trade. Um, they're black immigrants who've come over in the 20th century. And that sort of creates a fundamentally different dynamic, but it's one that we just don't cover in schools. And perhaps that needs to change for us to, and again, you know, it's a uniquely British aspect to it and needs a uniquely British approach. Yeah. Um, but that probably starts with education and understanding in schools. And I think the benefit of America's overwhelming influence is that, you know, you might start to see people pushing for that sort of change in how we teach British history and which aspects of British history we cover. One last point, uh, point of disagreement I have with, with Remy Um when he talks about, I think the, the, the rise of Trump has created kind of polarization in the debate, but I am not sure he is a product of racial uh, resentment in the sense that I don't think racial resentment has gotten worse from 2008 when Obama was elected in 2016. I think there's other factors, um, some of them unsavory, but a lot, a lot of them kind of understandable about kind of 
of the rise of kind of economic nationalist message, um, uh, a, a, a kind of sense of this is an opportunity for people like us to send a message to establishment, kind of, you know, a middle finger to establishment. I think there's a lot of reasons why people voted Trump, but I'm not sure the racial resentment one is the most important in explaining that. Um, you know, if you actually look at the way the United States functions increasingly, there's a lot more mixed marriages. Um, and actually, if you look um, from Trump's election in 2016 to his um, 2020 defeat, uh, I think he increased his share of the vote in Hispanics, with Hispanics, with, with black people. So I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical with the kind of racial resentment argument. Um, he definitely heightened kind of tensions in, in, in the conversations in the media, especially. And I think a lot of the kind of rise, as he points out rightfully, a lot of the rise of kind of more identitarian uh, kind of woke types um, has been fueled by the rise of Trump, which kind of gave credence to their to their to the analysis. But I'm not sure that the kind of racial resentment angle is the one is the best angle to explain his election in 2016. That's a whole podcast episode on its yeah. own. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, we'll have to read, you know, Tanahisi Coates's mammoth article opposite arguing the opposite maybe yeah. we can get him on the podcast yeah that'd be interesting. um i will say that you know in remy's book he actually has a he has a chapter and i think it's only a paragraph that he covers on it yeah but the chapter is the feminization of white power and he um talks about trump and he, he i guess I, I would argue that he sort of frames it in the book at least um through a masculine feminine lens rather than a racial one um but that it's a sort of hyper masculinized version of white power that has some appeal to uh, some non-whites. And as you mentioned, like his share to go up uh, among Hispanics uh, in 2020 relative yeah. to 2016. Yeah. Um, Julian, we're going to have to wrap up here. This was our last episode of the season. Um, we will come back in September. Just huge thank you to all of you, to our patron supporters, to those who've tuned in, to those who've written very nice comments on our social media, to those who are sharing the podcast, telling telling about it to your friends. We're incredibly grateful and to be able to do this every week. It's not been easy to hold that rhythm, and that's partly why we have to wrap up maybe a little earlier than we'd have liked to. But big, big thank you for all of you for allowing us to do this. It's it's really fantastic, and we're incredibly grateful. Um, if you want to help us continue to make sure the podcast is the best it possibly can, um, please do consider... As always, subscribing to our Patreon. As always, uh, writing a review. There's many things you can do to make sure the podcast continues to grow and we'd be very grateful if you do so. But especially this week, please do consider going down in the description. We've got a link to a survey. It's a great opportunity for you to voice your uh, the things you like and things you don't like about the podcast. And it's a fantastic opportunity for us to kind of recalibre depending on the feedback we get from you. So please do consider doing that. Uh, it really, really helps and allows us to kind of think over summer about what we can do better for the year to come. Uh, for our patron supporters, um, have a few nuggets for you over summer, so stay tuned for that. And um, otherwise, uh, see you all next September. Bye.